Let's just uh, pray one more time as we come to God's Word together, shall we? Oh Lord, we just ask for your grace. Lord, we ask for your wisdom as we turn to your Word now. Lord, help us to understand these things that your Spirit has given us for our edification, for our growth, for our encouragement, for our walk, for our ministry. Uh, Lord, just bless this time of study, we pray. Uh, Give us ears that will hear and eyes that will see. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier on, this um, account we have, this letter, epistle uh, to 2 Timothy, uh, I find just incredible. It's one of my favorite um, portions of Scripture. Uh, and in one sense, whatever I'm studying at the time is my favorite portion of scripture, but this really is for many reasons. Um, we will get to certain bits and I'll share as we go through that were very instrumental in my own life personally, uh, as the Lord spoke to me through the things that Paul had written to Timothy. We went last time through a lot of the background, the detail. I don't need to go through that again. So if you want to look at the history and what led to the writing and so on, uh, maybe just review last week's study. But uh, I want to just jump straight into the text if we can, uh, just reminding you of the kind of subtext of this book, this letter, which is all about loyalty. Again, it's looking at it in terms of the chapter one, uh, looking at suffering. Um, it's loyalty in suffering. That's what Paul is encouraging Timothy to show. Uh, in chapter two, we'll get on to loyalty in service. You know, the work that the Lord, the ministry that the Lord has called us to. Um, and then we see the kind of change, but loyalty in the midst of apostasy. Uh, once again, very applicable in the days in which we live. And then finally, it swings right round and looks at the Lord's loyalty to us. You know, in the midst of all the challenges we face, and particularly as for Timothy, it was a case that those that had been with him had deserted him. Paul had had that. Timothy was going through that. Uh, and so on. And we see that the Lord never gives up on you. You know, what a great comfort that is. So let's get straight into to the word, into the text this morning. We read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's so much here. I mean, we can just go kind of make camp on the first verse for a while. But, you know, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed to tell you what he is, what he's been called to, because he tells you that it's not of his own volition, it's by the will of God. We're going to look at a quote later by Oswald Chambers, which talks about the things that sometimes sound very humble before men can actually be the very opposite before God, and vice versa. Things that sound um, very uh, arrogant sometimes before men can be Real humility before God. And Paul here saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he's not saying it as if you know there's some great merit on his part. He says very clearly, by the will of God. This is all of God. The reason that Paul was in this place was nothing to do with his ability or with his skill set or anything else. And yes, the Lord does use the things he's given us, of course. But he doesn't need those things. You see, everything that Paul had learned as a, as a Pharisee, everything he'd learned uh, under Gamaliel, all had to be stripped away 
before he could be of any use to God. We read that quote last time from Martin Luther, that God creates out of nothing. And before God can do anything with us, he needs to bring us down to nothing. If you've not experienced that, I'm sure in your Christian life you will. And many of us here this morning will testify to that. The Lord strips away everything. All the, the stuff that we thought we had, all the skill set that we were going to God and say, well, Lord, I can do all these things. Look, you can use these. And God says, I don't want that. I just want you. And then when, when we get to that point of realizing that he doesn't need us, God says, no, I want to use you. I want to use you to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Again, not ashamed to declare who he was. There was a conversation I was having with somebody a little while ago, and um, I just mentioned in the conversation that I was a pastor, um, and, and Amita was with me, and she said, she said, Daddy, why do you always say you're a pastor when you speak to people? And I said, well, because I want people to understand what God has called me to. You know, it's not me bragging. I'm not saying that I've, I've achieved something great in this life. This is what God has done. It wasn't my choice. You know, I, I love the idea of going around, having the opportunity to speak in various places. The idea of pastoring a church was so far away from, from my mind. It was never on my list of things I thought I'd ever want to do. And yet here I am, and I praise God. No, it's what God is doing with me. It's what God is doing with you. And of those things, we should be very proud, because that is his work. You know, the will of God is seen in a number of ways in, in Scripture, at least four that we could cite. We, we can speak of God's sovereign will. Um, scripture speaks of the mystery of God's will. Uh, and we can explore that in depth. But then there's his revealed will, which is the word of God. That is God's revealed will. He's revealed to us through the word, his plan, his purpose, and all of these things. And then, of course, his will for mankind in general which is salvation. Of course, we read in First Peter that, uh, or Second Peter that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to salvation. That's God's will for mankind. And then there's the will for the believer, which in First Thessalonians we're told very clearly is sanctification. You know, anytime you and I ask that question regarding our own lives about God's will, I wonder what God's will is in this situation. Well, the answer is sanctification. Always the same answer. You know, whatever you're going through, what's God's will in this sanctification? It's to set you apart. It's to get you away from the things of the world. It's to get you to put your eyes upon him. That's God's will. Of course, the, the, the mystery of his will speaks of the, the, the things that have been hidden for time, that now have been revealed, that ultimately God will bring together in Christ Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, all in one for his glory. So that's like the, the all-encompassing. But we see God's will expressed in Scripture in these different ways. Again, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And that will, again, encompasses all of those four things we just mentioned. And look at this, according to the promise of life. And Paul says, I, I am what I am. I am this apostle because of this promise of life. He says, which was in Christ Jesus. Yeah, and we are all beneficiaries of that promise of life. And notice the foundation of that promise of life is Christ Jesus, and only Christ. That's the, the, the life that we have, this, this life that is so different than the world understands or knows. We've been reborn, we have this new life, we are born again. According to the promise of life 
which is in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle because of this, because God has brought around this system whereby we can be born again, this gospel of grace. That's why Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not in you, it's not in any other person or any other thing, it's only Christ. And then he says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we've already seen that Paul saw Timothy very much as his spiritual son, his son in the faith. Paul clearly had a very um, soft spot in his heart for um, to Timothy. Uh, he, from a, a young man, Paul had seen him grow, seen him mature in the faith, uh, and now taking on this uh, role of leading this church in Ephesus and so on. But it is interesting to know, if, if you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that very often Paul will use grace and peace. Very often in his letters, you know, grace and peace from, and he gives you, you know, this kind of opening to his letters. And yet when he writes to pastors, in Timothy and in Titus, we have not just grace and peace, but grace, mercy and peace. It's interesting that that is added in there for those that are in pastoral ministry. And pastors need that. They need that mercy from the Lord. Sometimes, you know, the burden can seem too overwhelming. And this is what Timothy was going through. Timothy had come to this place, and we'll see as we go through, that it just got too much at times. And most pastors that I know that I've spoken to and fellowship with, at some time or another, have just said, I've had enough, I can't do it anymore. And it just sometimes gets overwhelming. And then we have to remember that we're not doing it because we chose to do it. We're doing it because we've been called to do it. We didn't opt into this and we can't opt out of it. This is all about God. And God gives the grace. God gives the peace. And God gives the mercy. And sends help when we need help. Sends relief when we need relief. And you know, and I've praised God so many times through the, the time I've been passed through this fellowship. The way that God has raised up people. And he's continuing to raise up people here to help, to do things, to ease the, the, the load and the burden. But it's not just that. It's the fact that actually when you start to see those green shoots, when you see life, when you see the Lord doing things, it's such an encouragement. It gives you that, that momentum in a sense to want to carry on because you start to see that the labor was worthy of all the effort that you've put in. You know, imagine a, a farmer, and, a, and Paul will actually use this example in the second chapter, which we won't get to uh, this morning, I don't think. But uh, Paul uses the example of, of a pastor in that role as a farmer. Imagine just plowing the field continually, sowing the seed. But if you never ever got to see any of those green shoots, how demoralizing potentially that could be. And sometimes pastoral ministry can be a little bit like that. But when you see those green shoots, when you see that all that effort, all that work is worth it, all the things that people don't see, all the late nights of studying, all the other things that go on, all the, the time pastors have to give up with, with you know, their families for the things that are necessary for the life of the fellowship, those things become absolutely worthwhile when we see people responding to the gospel, when we see people growing. That's why what Adrian said earlier was so true about, you know, if God is blessing you, share it. It's not just for me, but for everybody. It's great to see that the Lord is working in our lives, in our hearts. It's such an encouragement when somebody shares something. I mean, what Bill shared this morning, what a great encouragement to see the way the Lord has worked in Bill's life. 
Yeah, we all go through times of, of doubt and challenge and so on. But when we come to that place and, and we can give God the glory that he's been there with us the whole way and we look back down that path and we see the Lord never left our side. I'll just finish that verse off because to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy and peace. And notice again, it's from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. That, that's the source of all the grace. That's the source of all the mercy. That's the source of all the peace. It, it doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from God. Only God can bring about those things. Only God can give enough grace for us to, to carry on. The mercy we need in those times where we just need support, we need strengthening. And that peace that comes from God that we're told passes understanding is beyond anything that we can rationally work out. There are times when we, we could always be pulling our hair out. But, you know, the Lord just gives the peace that is beyond the circumstances. And it comes from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then Paul carries on and says, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers. You know, this is the same God who, who was, who is, who is to come. I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience. That without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. Paul just making this statement to Timothy, you know, I've been praying for you the whole time. How, you know how encouraging it is when somebody comes up to you and says, I've been praying for you. I'm sure you've experienced it, you've had it. Where somebody comes and just, you know, the Lord's laid on my heart this week just to pray for you. That's why, you know, in, in the email we send out each week with all the prayer requests, one of those the points on there is just choose somebody, anybody in the fellowship, and pray for them every day that week. Just pray that God will sustain them, will bless them, will help them through whatever they're going through. And you don't even need to know what they're going through. Just pray for them. And then maybe on Sunday, just go up and say, the Lord laid you on my heart this week, I've been praying for you. What encouragement that is. What encouragement to Timothy to, to know that through the challenges that he'd gone through, that there's Paul in prison with so many other things to be thinking about. Probably hearing swords, be, swords being sharpened and axes being made ready for his becoming beheading, which was about to take place. Paul had a whole lot of other stuff to be worried about. But no, he said, you know, I can honestly say that I've been praying for you every day. I don't let a day go by where I don't pray for you, Timothy. You know, I remember what God has done in you and with you and for you. And he says, with a, with a pure conscience, I can honestly say this, that I haven't stopped praying for you. You've always been in my prayers. You know how important those prayers were. As Timothy, at this point, receiving this letter, reading this for the first time, you almost see a, a, kind of a tear roll down his cheek as he remembers. He looks back and thinks of all the challenges and thinks, wow, yeah, I remember the Lord's grace was really powerful that day. And I'm thinking probably that was the day that, that Paul was praying at that moment for me. You know, we don't get to be with each other every moment of every day and see all the things we go through. But, you know, the Lord sees those things. And if the Lord at any time during the day puts upon your heart to pray for somebody in the fellowship, do it. Do it there and then. And if you get the opportunity, text them or... WhatsApp or whatever these young people do with these things, I don't understand it myself. But, you know, some way, just let them know that you've been praying for them. What a blessing, what an encouragement that is.
I was listening to one of the commentaries and they asked these two questions. They said, how is your prayer list? Do you have a prayer list? Do you have a list of things you pray for regularly? You know, of course, we should be praying for our own walk with the Lord and we should be praying for our family. But what about others? And the question was asked, you know, is your pastor on your prayer list? Please pray for me. I, I need that, that strength that only can come from God and God will respond to the prayers that you pray. And then the question was asked, what about our political leaders? Because we're actually encouraged in Scripture to pray for those in authority, to pray for those in government. Well, look, if there's ever a time they need it, it's right now. What a mess our political system is in. Well, let's do what Scripture says and let's make a, a habit individually of praying for our political leaders. And particularly those that have faith, particularly those that profess to know Jesus. Paul carries on says, greatly desiring, really longing to see thee, being mindful of thy tears. Notice that. We don't tend to think of this when we read and look at Timothy. We don't tend to see this man who behind closed doors sometimes would just be overwhelmed and would break down and cry. And those moments where he went to the throne of grace and said, Lord, I can't do this anymore. This church is too much. We've got too many critics, too many people attacking me. We've got people coming in trying to teach false doctrines. And I'm just overwhelmed. I'm just a young man. And, and then Timothy receiving this. And Paul says, I know what you're going through. Yeah, how did Paul know this? Well, maybe Paul had been with Timothy at times previous to this and had seen some of those moments and witnessed some of those moments. But more likely, Paul knew firsthand what he'd gone through. He knew for a fact that Timothy was going through the same kind of things. You know, none of us, when we suffer temptation, are unique. We all experience the same temptations that each other do. We tend to think we're on our own in it. But Paul's saying, no, no, I understood what you were going through. Be mindful of thy tears. He says, that I may be filled with joy. This is why Paul is writing this. He says, I, I want to come and see you. I'm aware of what you've gone through, but I want to come and see you. I want to give you a hug. I want to encourage you face to face. And as it happened, that opportunity didn't present itself because very shortly after this, Paul was killed in Rome. But he says, when I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee. What a statement to have recorded in Scripture. Timothy here, we are told, had this incredible faith. A faith that despite the challenges, despite those tears and everything else, never gave up. I've got some quotes later about faith, and one that really just just knocked me over last night when I read it. I immediately had to text it to my brother, because I knew that he would be encouraged by it, and this morning he texted back and he was encouraged by it. I'll share it with you in a short while. Unfeigned faith that is in thee, and we talk which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lewis and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Paul knows the family history, he knows about this family. He knows how Lewis was... Timothy's grandmother, she believed, she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and she put her faith and trust in Christ. Seemingly she was the first one to be one to Christ. And then her daughter Eunice, Timothy's mum. I mean, once again, just, I've said this many times, but how important grandmothers are. You know, if you have grandchildren so into their lives, spiritual things, and grandfathers too, you know, what a role they play. I've shared many a time 
how important my own grandmother was in my life. I said I used to get home from school, I used to take the newspaper down there um, that we had as a family, I used to go and give it to Gran so she could read it in the evenings. Yeah, and Gran used to just sit me down and she'd just talk to me about Jesus. She'd read Oswald Chambers to me or she'd talk to me about Israel. In, in her back room, she had a big picture of the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock. And I remember as a young child, she used to say, keep your eye on that. She said, because the temple's going to be rebuilt. And she used to regularly have a, a prayer meeting in a house and Bible studies there with other women that she knew. And she, she wasn't perfect. <laughs> she, she had a, a, a rough edges. She was very, very stubborn. Don't know, maybe I'd get some of that, I don't know. But, you know, but she was a wonderful woman and she just, just gave me this passion, this love for the Lord and for his word. Of course, that was then emphasized by my own mum and dad, but what an influence she was to me. We understand from Acts 16, Timothy's father was Greek, um, so Eunice, his mum, had not practiced an orthodox Jewish faith by marrying a Jew, um, but they seemed to it that Timothy had been taught the scriptures, that we see through Timothy 3.15, that from a child he'd been taught the scriptures. Clearly his dad was okay with that, whatever he believed or not, he didn't have any problems seemingly with Timothy being taught about these things, and the history of Israel, and the scriptures, and the law, and so on. So Timothy had a really good scriptural grounding, which stood him in great stead for this role that the Lord was using him in now. And when Paul comes to Lystra, this first missionary trip, it seems to be at that point, from what we can deduce from the text, that Paul preached. He was taken outside the city, stoned, left for dead, and some people think he did die, and then suddenly just gets up again, goes back in and carries on preaching. That seemed to have a pretty big impact on this young man, Timothy. And Timothy puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You almost you can see Timothy looking at Paul as some sort of spiritual superhero. You know, I want to be like that. Well, it's a good thing, you know, we should all have Pauls that we look to, people that encourage us and excite us when it comes to, to, to God's word. I've been blessed many times in my life by, by people like that that I've looked at, and they've been a real encouragement, a blessing. Chuck Misler, for me, was one of those characters. Tony, you, you met a little while ago. Um, Tony Holiday, pastor of was Shoreline in London, now back out in America was for a time the Lord brought him into my life and he was such a great blessing as somebody that every time I was around him, I just wanted to love Jesus more, just being around him. Yeah, and it's good to have people like that that stir us up. And we'll see Timothy or Paul trying to say to Timothy, that's what he wants to do, stir him up in his faith. But at the same time, be mindful that there's Timothys that will look at you as a Paul, whether you're male or female or irrelevant, that there are people that will look at you and their impression of Jesus Christ will largely be based upon the way you live your life. You know, there's a whole load of young children here. They look at us. They'll take their lead from us. When they talk to you, when they fellowship with you after the service, as they're running by you and, and just tripping over everything as they do after the service. You know, do they see something of Jesus? Is this something they take home and think, wow, that person really loves God? You know, just the little comments that you share. Just the little words of encouragement you give them. Because to them, you are going to be as Paul was to Timothy. It's kind of a big responsibility, isn't it? 
We don't think we're worthy of it, but that's not the point. When Paul finally comes back, the second missionary journey, by this time, Timothy is a little bit older, more mature, walking with the Lord, and Paul says, come, let's, let's go on this journey together. And Paul leaves home and steps out in faith and goes, and Timothy leaves home, steps out in faith and goes with Paul on this journey. Seeing all sorts of incredible miracles and things en route. Of course, God using that to train Timothy for what was to come. And so Timothy is told here by Paul, verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Now, the New Testament says we shouldn't lay hands on people hastily. Why? Well, because the whole idea of laying on of hands is that you are identifying yourself with that person. You are being identified with them. That, that's why the, the modern church has this idea that you know we have services and anybody comes and we lay hands on them and they fall over and all this kind of nonsense. That's, that's not found in Scripture. No, no, we have to be very cautious who we lay hands on. You know, in the Old Testament we see the priests would lay hands on those animals whose blood was about to be shed. They were identifying themselves with those animals, recognizing that that animal was going to be put to death in their place. So the identification. In the same way that when Paul and Barnabas and so on went out in ministry, hands are laid upon them. Why? Because the church was identifying themselves and saying, you are going as if we were going. You are our ambassadors. You're going representing us. We can't all go on this missionary journey for whatever reasons, but you're going and you're going because the Lord has called you to go and you're going with our love, with our blessing, with our prayers, with our support. It's as if we were going ourselves. And here we're told that Paul had at some point laid hands on Timothy, pray with him, quite possibly praying for Timothy to receive the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now for some people, we've covered this and talked about it in the past, some people when they are born again immediately they receive the, the power of the Holy Spirit. For others it's a separate thing, that they are born again. And of course we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit the moment you become a believer. But the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit are two separate things. And we could look at a number of scriptures that we see. I mean, even with the disciples, they were to remain in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. They were saved. They were born again after the resurrection. They had seen Jesus. They put their trust in him. They'd received the Holy Spirit. But it's not until the day of Pentecost that that power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. And it may well be this case with Timothy here that Paul, as they were about to go off in ministry, lays his hands on him, prays with him. This identification that we are as one effectively in this. Receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, the power for ministry. And Paul says, you know, I want to put you in remembrance. Just Do you remember that time when I laid hands on you? When I prayed for you? Do you remember how you felt? And clearly from the context here, it was a really big defining moment in Timothy's life. Paul said, think back how you felt then, how you wanted to serve the Lord, how you wanted to step out, how there was no giant that was too big for you to go and try and slay with God's strength, with God's power. God hasn't changed is what Paul is saying. He says, stir up the gift of God 
which is in thee. Now, we're not specifically told what gift this is, but seemingly it was that gift of teaching. That's what Timothy was now doing. This gift to look at scripture, to, to just look at the words on the page and just they come alive. And then you want to share that with other people. Timothy seemingly had that gift. Notice also here though that there's the blessing of accountability. You know, accountability is so important in our walk as Christians. You know, it's really good to have others that keep watch over our souls and lives and ministries. People that love us enough to come and say, how are you getting on with your walk with the Lord? Are you still close to the Lord? Are you allowing things in your life that you shouldn't be? Are you walking pure before him? You know, Paul, here, this accountability, Timothy was accountable to Paul. Ultimately accountable to God, but Paul was there to remind him of just what God had done and called him to. This word, stir up. Anazopurio, it's in the, the Greek. It's the idea of the, the remains of a fire, the embers, stirring them up into a fire again. Back in our house in Deal, um, we had quite a big back garden, and uh, I frequently would uh, go and do some pruning, and because we had a bunch of trees and bits, they often branches to chop down, all sorts of things. And I had this old oil drum that had been left by the previous occupants. Uh, and so I used to kind of get all the uh, wood in there and put some paper at the bottom. I put some holes at the bottom so the air could get in. I used to light it. And I used to love just watching this burn of an evening. And I would go out in the morning and those embers were still there. And I could never resist just throwing a little bit more in there. Just seeing it come immediately just burst into life again. It almost looks like it's out. But it had been burning all night, it was still really hot. And you throw a few dry leaves or another stick and suddenly it bursts into flame again. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. You know, maybe things have become a little bit like that, but the fire's not gone out. It just needs to be stirred up. And you stir it around with a stick and immediately there's flame again. Again, is that which is kindled by the fire and you or lighted up. This is the whole idea uh, that Paul is saying. Um, these words that are associated with this word, in the English words are the, you know, the kindle anew or rekindle, resuscitate, uh, kindle up in flame, one's mind, strength, zeal, and so on. That, that's what Paul was wanting to do with Timothy. It's kind of a, as Ron Matson used to say, it's kind of a put your big boy trousers on. And it really is. It's kind of like step up to the table, step up and realize that, that God has called you. You've been given this ministry. Don't quit. Keep going. This is worth it all. One commentator had made the comment that the idea again of stirring up is of a horse roused to his utmost. You think of the power of a horse when it's in full gallop. Saying, Timothy, come on. Get back in the saddle. Ride again. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, we shouldn't be fearful. The idea is cowardice, being timid, not wanting to move forward, frightened of of the next step because of what may happen or what it might bring. The idea of the sound mind, 
Again, is this admonishing or calling to soundness of mind? It really, the idea is self-control or, or discipline. You know, God doesn't want us to be timid. He doesn't want us to, to cower, wondering whether we should or shouldn't move forward. But to be disciplined, knowing that we have to take that next step. To follow after our Savior. Is be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. The idea is not that Timothy was ashamed, but say, don't ever become ashamed. Don't let the circumstances ever get you to that point that you're ashamed of the Lord. There's nor of me his prisoner. Don't be ashamed that I'm in prison, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. This chapter goes to be called The Afflictions of the Gospel because these are the the struggles that any follower of Jesus is going to go through at some point or other. You know, there may be many who feel the Christian life is is a path that ought to be easy. Sometimes the church portrays Christianity as that, that you become a Christian and all of our problems are solved and it's all happy and we love each other. And No, that's not how it is in reality. There's struggles, there's trials, there's persecutions. But the Lord allows these things because he is good and because he knows what's best for us. Paul's challenge here is to walk the talk. And it includes this commitment to our own personal lifestyles. He's saying to Timothy, in a sense, look at yourself, examine yourself effectively. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed that you serve the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as his prisoner. But get involved. And you know what? If you struggle for it, if you suffer for it, well, it's to the glory of God. This apparently was found in a will, according to J. Vernon McGee. Uh, This uh, comment. To my son... I leave the pleasure of uh, earning a living. For 25 years, he thought the pleasure was all mine. He was mistaken. I thought that was quite amusing. Some people think that their, their journey through life should be an easy one. But the reality is, it's not. It's a challenge. You know, none of us enjoy suffering. And even the Lord himself prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You know, suffering is some, isn't something that we should look forward to. But is isn't something we should shy away from either. And Jesus made it absolutely clear that in the world you shall have tribulation. That's trouble, that's difficulties, challenges. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We will go through those things. But you know what? It's worth it all. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus is saying, look, I know what you're going to face. It hated me first. And the reason it hates you is not because of you. Because I tell you now that if you moved away from Jesus, if you stopped talking about Jesus, the world wouldn't hate you anymore. There's an individual at work this week um, who's trying really hard to uh, to be an atheist. Um, and he's, he's failing miserably. And a couple of times I challenged him. He kind of blasphemed a few times. And I just pulled him up on it. And I said, is that the gods that you don't believe in that you just mentioned? And then he used Jesus' name and a blasphemous sentence, and I didn't just highlighted it. I said, "Just correct me. Is that the Jesus that you say doesn't exist? Did that you just referred to?" You know, and he's starting to realize how much his own vocabulary is about God, about Jesus, and he's tying himself up in knots. And you know, but when we when we talk about Jesus, the world doesn't like it. <clears throat> this 
is a statement by Chuck Misley. He said, just because we believe that Christians will not go through that specific segment of time called the Great Tribulation, where do we get the arrogance to assume that we will be spared what most of the body of Christ through most of the world for most of the last 2,000 years has had to endure? Most of the church has experienced persecution. We're kind of in a unique little bubble that we really don't have a lot of persecution. Maybe we need to lift our heads a little bit more above the parapets and, and let people know what we stand for and who we stand for. Samuel Rutherford said, If you were not strangers here, the hounds of the world would not bark at you. you know, if they're not barking at you, maybe they think you're one of their own. And that's not a good thing. Tozer said this, As the world hated Christ, so it hates those who bear his image. And that's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? It was the unregenerate religious world which most fiercely opposed him and sufficient for the disciple to be as his master. It's interesting that in my ministry, most of the attacks I've had have actually been from other Christians, other churches, other church leaders who have tried to challenge me on where I stand and what I believe. It's interesting. Thomas Watson said this, Persecution is the touchstone of sincerity. It discovers true saints from hypocrites. Unsound hearts look good in prosperity, but in time of persecution fall away. Hypocrites cannot sail in stormy weather. They will follow Christ to Mount Olivet, but not to Mount Calvary. And then this quote by Chuck Misler, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is obedience in spite of the consequences. That is the best definition of faith I think I've ever heard. Let me read that again. Faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is obedience in spite of the consequences. What a great summary of this chapter that is. Paul carries on and speaking of Jesus who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When? Before the foundation of the world. That's when we were called. That's when the Lord began this work. And all along, God has had this plan and purpose for us. He alone knows the end from the beginning. We're told, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What a statement that is. The death has been abolished. It's been made of no effect. Again, Paul, remember, is writing this letter from prison where he knows he's under a death sentence. Any day now, he may hear that that's going to be the day of his execution. But he says, you know what? Death has been rendered ineffective. Because, yes, they can take my life, but they can't change the fact that I have been saved for eternity because of what Christ has done. And the body may die, but the spirit they can't touch. Man cannot be saved by perfect obedience because he's incapable of rendering it. He cannot be saved by imperfect obedience because God will not accept it. The only solution is, as we find in John 14, verse 6, that Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. 
And then Paul says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now once again, that may sound a little arrogant on Paul's part. He's almost displaying all his credentials. But I just want to, and we're going to close with this. And we'll pick up the rest next week. This is a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, Get into the habit of examining in the sight of God the things that sound humble before men. And you'll be amazed at how staggeringly, staggeringly impertinent they are. Oh, I shouldn't like to say that I'm sanctified. I'm not a saint. To say that before God, and it means, no, Lord, it's impossible for you to save and to sanctify me. There are chances I have not had. So many imperfections in my brain and body. No, Lord, it isn't possible. That may sound wonderfully humble before men, but before God is an attitude of defiance. And he goes on and says, again, the things that sound humble before God may sound the opposite before man. To say, thank God, I know I am saved and sanctified is in the sight of God, the acme of humility. It means you have so completely abandoned yourself to God that you know he is true. Never bother your head as to whether what you say sounds humble before men or not, but always be humble before God and let him be all in all. Paul, not ashamed to say that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. You have been appointed by Jesus Christ to bear fruit. As you go out into the world this week, let's pray that the Lord would use us whether we face persecution or not, remember that definition of faith. Let me just read that to you one more time. I think it's so powerful. Faith is not belief in spite of the evidence. Faith is obedience in spite of the consequences. Whatever may come this week, trust God. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, if we are feeling discouraged, then Lord, encourage us. Lord, stir up. Lord, just kindle that flame in our hearts. Remind us, Lord, of our calling, Lord, of our salvation. Remind us, Lord, of all that you've done in our lives to bring us to this point. And give us the boldness to step out. That, Lord, we are not ashamed of the gospel. That we're not ashamed to name the name of Jesus Christ. Because there is no other name in heaven and earth by which we may be saved. There is no name that is greater. We are proud to belong to Jesus. And, Lord, let the world see it, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.